This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I am very excited for this episode and for this week. Uh, we're back with another installment of ASX Week. It went so well earlier this year uh, that we're doing it all again. We're going bigger this time across Equity Mates podcast and Get Started Investing podcast. But to kick it off today, we've got a returning favorite from the last ASX week. That's right. A uh, friend of Equity Mates and uh, a guest that we've had a lot of people ask to return. And it is our pleasure to welcome Anthony Doyle from Fidelity. Anthony, welcome. Cheers, gents. So today we're going to be discussing really everything that's going on in markets. You're a cross-asset specialist at Fidelity. So um, we're going to ask you all the hard questions. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Fingers, fingers crossed you are, you're across it all. I'm sure you are. For those uh, who are joining us for the first time, the ASX week is now spread across a full month. So to uh, get access to the videos that are available for a month, uh, head to www.asx.com.au slash investor dash day. Confusing URL. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. ASX need to sort it out. You need the two in the link. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Let's get stuck in because there's plenty to cover with you, Anthony, and uh Let's start with the thematic of uh, this time is different. In your presentation, you mentioned the four most dangerous words in markets, which is this time is different. Uh, You were using that to explain how the post-COVID market is different to the post-GFC market. So can you explain some of the key differences that we're seeing here? Yeah. I mean, we've had two once-in-a-lifetime events within the space of 12 years or so. Mm. And I guess I, I was referring back to the GFC as despite it being in, in 2009, 2008, 2009, it still looms large in a lot of investors' minds um, because of just how uh, uncertain and volatile the environment was back then. Um, so I had a lot of fun times working on a, a bond and currency desk in Dublin 
um, with exposure to Lehman bonds and exposure to a whole heap of leveraged loans and going in to talk to clients and explain why their fixed income funds were down 20, 30% over the course of a couple of months from what are so-called defensive assets. And uh, it's only when you look back at these seismic events that occur, when you look back uh, and analyse what had occurred or what has gone on, that you realise that there are some significant institutional changes and it can be quite difficult for us to assess that real time as we're living through it. Mm. So if you if you cast your minds back to, to 2008, 2009 and the decade that followed, when I talk about is this time different or this time is different, I'm talking from an institutional standpoint. So very much the name of the game in 2009, the recovery, the recovery phase that the world went through, there was so much focus on debt and concerns around government debt to GDP. And that flowed on through um, the, the middle of the last decade into the European debt crisis and the ability of sovereign nations to repay their debts. This time around, there's no concerns around that at all. Um, so, you know, the, the name of the game last time was austerity from governments, fiscal austerity. Um, and when I say austerity, you know, tightening the budget tightening your belts, um, trying to move into an area where you can start to service that debt and actually retire some of that debt, get the debt to GDP levels lower from the government. This time around, globally, you're looking at fiscal expansion. You're looking at governments stepping into the void that has been caused by lockdowns and this pandemic, stepping in to, to support their respective economies right around the developed world and the emerging world to some extent. Now, this is really being led by the US that are doing huge amounts of fiscal stimulus um, to the tune of almost $9 trillion um, by 2025. But it's also followed on from Europe, the UK, and of course, you know, bringing it closer to home. When I returned to Australia in 2018, 2019, there was this fixation from the coalition government on a balanced budget. That's really out the window, right? So we've got an election next year and it's going to be lots of goodies for everyone, mm. I'm sure, um, because there's there's not this fixation on, on having a balanced budget living within your means. The government has rightly stepped in um, and, and one of the key policies uh, of the last couple of years has been JobKeeper, for example, in order to support the Australian economy through this extremely difficult time. And so when I say this time is different from a fiscal stance We've moved from austerity to one where the government is expanding its balance sheet, um, but also on the monetary side. So when we talk about monetary policy, interest rates, um, in terms of uh, looking at, at what the RBA did um, in the last crisis, they only had to reduce interest rates a couple of times before they started increasing them again. This time we're at the party with everyone else in the um, zero interest rate world mm. Um, and we're drinking from the Kool-Aid. We're, we're <laughs> drinking from the punch bowl of quantitative easing, of yield curve control, of money printing, mm. um, which is quite a different environment to moving traditional interest rates up or down depending upon whether inflation is rising or falling or the economy is expanding or contracting. Um, and you're seeing some, what we've seen mostly from quantitative easing is financial asset price inflation and I'm sure, you know, you gents are very aware of what's going on in the housing market. But of course, this has impacts right throughout all equity markets, risk markets, corporate bond markets, as people look to generate returns that they once enjoyed simply from saving. Mm. 
mm. right? The online savings accounts, which had a 5% interest rate or a 6% interest rate. That's the environment we lived in after the GFC, maybe, maybe a little bit lower, 4%. Those days of term deposits generating any sort of return close to what inflation is are long gone as well. So on the monetary policy side, we've seen an evolution from a fixation, a focus on inflation targeting to one where the RBA is now very much focused on the labour market, generating um, a strong labour market, so unemployment rates fall, so wages begin to pick up. They want people to enjoy real wage growth and make this recovery as inclusive as possible as opposed to the post-GFC world where the people that did well out of policies like quantitative easing are those that own assets. Mm. And the people most impacted by the current COVID environment, pandemic environment, typically people on lower incomes that maybe don't own their home, maybe don't have big equity portfolios or superannuation funds and, uh, and you know, have been put at home because they haven't been able to work in hospitality or services. Um, so they want, the RBA wants to make this recovery as inclusive as possible. So they're really focusing on, on wage growth. So that's how, that's how the environment is, is quite different this time around mm. as opposed to, to what the, the status quo was post the GFC. Yeah. So I guess the red flag that comes out of that or the concern that comes out of that is post-JFC, we saw a decade-long bull run in the stock market uh, from 2009 to 2019. It was great to be in equity markets. If this time is different, does that mean we're not going to see a decades-long bull run out the back of COVID? Now, I'm quite, I'm quite bullish on, on risk assets long run more generally um, and have been consistently since we saw the pandemic hit, um, you know, even in, in March, April last year, long run. Mm. You know, I was, I was telling clients and, and talking to clients saying, you know, it's 50-50 if the Aussie equity market is up or down this year. But I can tell you in seven to ten years' time, the Aussie equity bar- market will be much higher than, than what, where it is today. Now, um, the, the danger that we're in today is that as the world has become increasingly um, leveraged, as the, wor- the world has become increasingly financialized, um, and as we rely upon rising asset markets so much to fund our retirements and fund our lifestyles, is that when you get any sort of whiff of the monetary punch bowl being removed from the party, investors have a tantrum, mm. um, whether that's in bond markets, the taper tantrum, or in <laughs> equity markets, the volatility that you experience. And inevitably, because of the impact that falling asset prices can have on people going out to consume and they become more worried, more concerned, they tighten their own household finances, they don't go out and spend, um, you see that central banks uh, are really forced into a corner and they don't act out on their preference to raise interest rates. And we saw this in 2019 from the US Fed, um, which was called the Powell Pivot. Um, We saw this from the RBA where they were telling us in 2018, 2019, they were going to hike rates and they ended up actually cutting rates um, after we had the election result of the last election in 2019. They came out, the election result was on the Saturday. Um, they came out on the Wednesday and said that they wanted to, to cut interest rates. So um, I think that the, the conditions continue to be fertile when we have so much liquidity in the global economic system while central banks are as dovish as they are, and whilst we have this technical, what we call a technical shift out of cash, money market funds, term deposits, um, this money looking for a home, and, and to use an acronym 
know, Tina, there is no alternative. Mm. Um, because what essentially central banks have done, what the RBA has done to all of us is remove the power of compound interest. The eighth wonder of the world, um, reputedly uh, Einstein <laughs> said that. Um, they've removed the power of compound interest from savings, yeah, yeah. defensive assets like government bonds because yields are so low. And uh, additionally, they're more willing to accept higher inflation. So what's the point of parking my money in a savings account yielding nothing and inflation is averaging 3% a year for the next decade? I'm going backwards when I take my money out in 10 years' time or I'm saving for a home or I'm saving for retirement or I'm saving for a car. Um, So essentially investors are looking at where are those asset classes where I can generate a return above inflation? And they move into corporate bonds and they move into equities. Mm. They, they like the income that you can generate from, from hybrid type assets or from equities, you know, the, the franking imputation benefits of that as well. So um, it's really quite an interesting environment. And essentially the tail wags the dog today um, because economic growth, we've, we've got this fixation of continuing to drive economic growth. Well, 60%, 55, 60% of our economy is consumption. You know, the, if you cast your minds back to, to uni or high school, you know, GDP, consumption plus investment plus government spending plus net exports, right? Well, 60% is consumption. 60% is us going out, you know, spending, uh, consuming, going to a cafe, getting a haircut, all that good stuff. Mm. Um, and this is what they're trying to generate. It's yeah. why they want higher asset price. They actually, this is what they want. Yeah. You'd be worried if we were going the other way um, and asset prices were declining. I remember the last time we spoke um, for the ASX day, you, you mentioned that Tina, there is no, no alternative. And it's really stuck with me when I think about, you know, what, you know, my investing decisions and, and when to enter the market or where to put money. And it just, yeah, it feels like this is just going to keep going. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's the same sort of anecdotes that you were hearing post GFC where inflation was rising, commodity prices recovered quite quickly and central banks were expected to raise interest rates and they never got there. Um, And don't forget the legacy of COVID-19 will be debt, whether it's Mm. government debt, whether it's corporate debt or whether it's household debt. So if the RBA wanted to tap the brakes um, and cool the Australian economy, they wouldn't have to raise interest rates by too much to have a very large impact because of the leverage that we now have on our balance sheets mm. as a as a collective. So, Anthony, you've mentioned inflation a fair bit there. You spoke about the need for or the RBA trying to bring in wage, wage growth and there's certainly a debate around inflation being transitory or is it structural? So where does fidelity sit on that side of the debate? Yeah, so transitory is definitely the, the buzzword around inflation at the moment from central banks and economic um, analysts and commentators. And then, of course, as you mentioned, more, is it more structural, being more more persistent? And definitely uh, I would suggest that what I'm seeing at the moment is an increasing debate that potentially this is more persistent than what central banks uh, are initially accounted for given the constraints on the supply side. So what we've seen is uh, demand has recovered very quickly because of the great um, work that scientists did on, on the vaccines and rolling out those vaccines. Of course, we had this pent-up demand um, as uh, Australians couldn't go out and, and spend to the same extent um, that they would if uh, the economy was open, um, having experienced lockdowns in Sydney and Melbourne, for example. In terms of the work that our analysts have done and our macro team have done in London and beyond, uh, we think that potentially this inflation may be a little bit more persistent than we had originally anticipated. 
Um, what you tend to see is that commodity prices recover quite quickly as we exit out of a recession um, and tend to appreciate in value before supply comes back on stream quite quickly. Now, the difficulty this time around is that whilst the developed world has had great success in rolling out the vaccine, the emerging world is generally the, the dominant provider of commodities globally and they're still grappling with this pandemic. Um, so there are still continued um, supply shortages in commodity chains in particular, but we're seeing that broaden out um, to other areas as demand has, has recovered so quickly. So uh, my neighbour's doing renovations on their house like um, the rest of Sydney <laughs> and uh, you talk to the builder and he's just like, you know, yeah. Bunnings has run out of lumber and run out of timber. Mm. Um, you know, the, the costs are of um, materials, you know, I'm not making money on this job because the quote I put in was predicated on this cost of materials and um, the, the costs are rising so quickly. And it's not just an Australia phenomenon, oh. it's um, the rest of the world as well. So now what I want to see if, if I um, expect inflation to rise more materially is like the RBA wages growth because essentially what happens if, if inflation is rising, consumers will, do, will have a substitution effect where they will substitute out one item for another item. You might like Mars bars and they're inflating and, well, okay, that's too, that's too expensive. I'm going to buy Snickers now. If you do have that wage growth coming through, consumers or companies can pass on rising costs to the end consumer. That's when you really start to see mm. inflation ramp up. So this is what we call demand pull inflation. Demand is pulling inflation higher rather than cost push inflation, which is what happens when commodities rise um, appreciably and, and you see petrol prices and so on rise quite quickly. So, I mean, you know, the construction of the consumer price index is dominated by food and energy prices. So central banks tend to exclude those when they think about what the overall level of prices are doing. But it is a huge debate going on in the markets because essentially central banks target inflation and if inflation is more sticky, more structural than they originally anticipated, well, they are what we call behind the curve. Mm -hmm. So the yield curve has shifted on them and they're trying to slow down the economy by raising interest rates. And that has implications for all asset classes, right, from fixed income to, to equities and particularly those growthy stocks that, that everyone loves um, and their valuations predicated on low interest rates forever, for example. So if we start with inflation, then the conversation moves to interest rates, as you just touched on, and then what that means to bond, bond markets, and then I guess what that means to equity markets. It's all a big interrelated chain. And I guess for a lot of investors, um, especially new investors, it's difficult to get your head around how that's all connected and what it all means. So you're across us asset specialists. So we're going to try and pick your brains and try and understand it all. So if we start with the first link in that chain, inflation to interest rates, um, if inflation is more structural, you know, if uh, wages rise, it's very hard for employers to push wages back down. Like that, yeah. that becomes very yeah. sticky. Uh, what will that mean for interest rates? And then, um, yeah, where does it sort of go from there? Why inflation is so important is obviously it's what central banks target, not despite I think that they've evolved their mandates to looking at, at generating full employment now as well. But why it's important is because you're trying to generate in your investment portfolios a return above inflation. Otherwise, inflation acts as a, a stealth tax. It acts um, in eroding your standard of living um, because you're spending more money 
on items um, and, uh, and you obviously have less capital to deploy elsewhere um, in, in your consumption habits. The RBA will tell you, you know, we've cut interest rates because inflation is low and we're worried about meeting our inflation objective. But if you talk to your friends, even your, what your own experiences are, you're probably saying, look, I don't know what they're talking about, inflation. We had, we had the numbers out recently, you know, 3% year on year. Like 3%, no way. Yeah. Inflation's way higher than that. And it comes back to how the statistician, the ABS constructs the consumer price index. It's not a cost of living index. Everyone mm. has a different cost of living. Yeah. It's a measure of the overall level of goods and services in the economy. And 25% of that index is new housing costs. So when's the last time you built a new house? <laughs> yeah, 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 yesterday. Yeah, yeah. 25% of that index, right? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's the largest yeah. weight within the CPI. Mm. For, for investors, you know, you can't really rely upon the CPI as a measure of of how prices are rising, you need to construct your own cost of living. Someone with me with three kids, my cost of living is going to be very different to a university student, to a retiree, you know, to the different cohorts of society. And not only that, you know, the ABS, what they also do is they uh, hedonically adjust items within the consumer price index. So they'll say that tech is 90% cheaper than it was in the year 2000. Well, I'm not sure if you see what iPhones are doing, but you know, it's in, <laughs> and that's because they're getting better, yeah, right? Yeah. The quality of the camera or yeah, yeah, um, yeah. the what? advancements in motor vehicles. Yeah, one megabyte of storage might be 90% cheaper than it was in 2000, yeah. but the actual phone is, yeah. is not, yeah. So when, when you're an investor, you're thinking, right, I'm trying to develop a portfolio that's diversified that will... Um, generate a return above the level of inflation um, so that I'm not suffering the, the impacts of, of higher inflation um, and I can, you know, protect my standard of living from that. As I mentioned, not only does the statistician, you know, heavily manipulate con- the consumer price index, which is, you know, it is what it is. It's not right. It's not wrong. But the, the Reserve Bank of Australia also have their own measures of inflation called trimmed mean and weighted median, which cuts out all the volatile stuff, essentially. But you still have to pay, you know, to fill your car. Yeah, if they're going to cut yeah, out food yeah. and energy, well, you still got to pay for groceries. Yeah. <laughs> you, you still got to pay for the petrol. And that generally shows a much more muted rise in inflation pressures within the Australian economy. So, I mean, the market is getting all excited at the moment, really led from offshore factors that, interest rates are going to rise. To tell you the truth, over the last 20, 30 years, the market always thinks that interest rates are going to rise. Um, And, you know, if you're looking at that past history, it never happens. Interest rates only go lower. Um, And, you know, this time around, the RBA and Governor Phil Lowe has been very clear that they want wages growth and they want inflation as they measure it by the CPI and their core measures to be in the mid part of their 2 to 3% inflation band for you know, around six months before they raise interest rates. So what that means is when you do see interest rate hikes coming through um, and the RBA is telling us they don't expect that to happen until 2024, let the good times roll, right, Um, (laughs) if that's the case. And even then, as I mentioned, because of how much leverage is in our economy, I don't expect that they're going to be raising interest rates to 5%. Mm. you know, in the next decade or anything like that. Um, It might be, you know, 25, 50 basis points, 75 tops, um, depending upon how the global economy recovers from from this pandemic. But what that means is for those investors that own fixed income assets like government bonds, 
or corporate bonds. Um, rising rates generally represent a headwind to performance for those assets. And we've had a, quite a big bear market in the Australian government bond market since August, where investors in Australian government bonds have, have lost 3% um, since August 31, which is doesn't sound much as an equity investor, but for an asset that's meant to be uncorrelated. Um, and to give you some context, any time the fixed income market loses money is a bear market. And the reason for that is uh, the income, the yield on government bonds um, is so low now that it doesn't protect you from rising rates. Mm. Um, and if you're a German investor, you, you can lend to the German government for minus 45 yeah, yeah. basis points. So you can pay for the privilege. And this is the weird world we're in. And, of course, you know, the RBA is the huge buyer in the market as well. Um, so they're in the market buying government bonds too. Um, so it's just a, a really strange world. And, you, and investors, like I said, I was looking at term deposit rates and things like that. I, I don't see, you know, apart from um, the safety of having your money in, in a bank, um, you're getting the same return putting it under your mattress. Mm. And if it's a negative deposit rate like there is in, in parts of Europe, well, you're better off having your, your money in cash and putting it in a safe than paying yeah. for the yeah, fees for yeah. the... Well, bank. on that, because people are probably hearing um, negative in, ne- negative yielding bonds and thinking, why is anyone lending their money to like a German government? Um, what 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 would the logic be for an investor to say, rather than putting this under a mattress or you know an, another government bond around the world? Like, why would I lend it to the German government and get less back? So there's a few reasons. Um, firstly, the European Central Bank could have, or they have a stance of minus 50 basis points um, in terms of depositing with the ECB. That's their interest rate. You know, ours is 10 basis points, 0.1 of a percent. So if I invest to the German government, well, that's minus 45 basis points. So <laughs> yeah. I'm making a five five basis point pickup. Um, the other reason is I might be mandated to do it. Um, okay. I have to own government bonds if I'm a bank or an insurance company mm. and I need to um, own that safety in terms of my balance sheet, the capital requirements that are regulatory. Um, additionally, I might have to liability match if I'm an insurer or a pension fund. Um, so I have, to, you know, it's a fixed bid for, for AAA safe haven assets. Mm. The other reason is um, comes down to, well, I think that um, someone will buy this bond off me yeah. um, mm. for a more expensive price in the future. Mm. Um, so there's a few reasons it's not totally nonsensical. Yeah. Um, depending upon, you know, your outlook, if you thought there was a recession on the horizon, the best asset to own would be um, long-dated, so 30-year maturity Australian government bonds. Mm-hmm. They're very high credit quality, um, very low yield, um, but, you know, those yields could go to zero, um, representing a substantial um, total return if that eventuality was to play out. Um, which is, you know, on the low probability um, in our estimation. Yeah. But, yeah, in a deflation, recessionary world, that's what you want to own, government bonds. You've mentioned that the easy money has been made and we want to pick your brain on that. But before we do, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So, Anthony, you've uh, in the presentation, you mentioned that we're in a marathon, not a sprint, and you said the easy money has been made. Markets are now in a marathon race to deliver returns. What do you mean by this? Yeah, so in terms of uh, investor psychology or the history of markets, what you tend to find is that the markets, equity markets in particular, accelerate out of a recession. Um, This is when the best performance is generated. Um, As the cycle bottoms and that investor psychology coming through, you know, oh, hell, I'm selling, you know, and and everyone sells, eventually there's a bottom um, and the market can recover very quickly from you. Sometimes the best thing to do is actually to turn off um, the financial media turn off the news, um, close your eyes, um, try and sleep well at night and, um, you know, maintain that long-term preference of investing, um, you know, extending your time horizon. Essentially, if you invested in the ASX 200 on any given day, there's a 54% probability that it's going to be up on that day because markets trend higher over time um, in total return terms. If you invest with a horizon of five years or more, historically speaking, um, you've never lost money in the ASX 200 in total that return terms. That is a terms. great start. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, a clip that and make it the top of the show notes and <laughs> put it on the page of the website start. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, even if you invest you know, the day before the sell-off of COVID-19, mm. obviously the market is much higher now and then you get that income coming in as um, companies have begun to issue dividends as they recovered even the banks um, have also been issuing dividends because they've been having yeah. quite a good time as well with the rise in, in house prices. But you move from that early cycle to mid-cycle where you start to move into a trending market and it starts to sort of flatline a bit and those accelerated, accelerating gains begin to slow because of concerns about rising interest rates or inflation or the prospects for particular sectors or particular companies. So you have to be a lot more discerning with um, the construction of the portfolio and identifying which companies are likely to do well in a a slowing growth, um, slowing economic growth environment. If you were to come from Mars, (laughs) land down in uh, Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane um, or wherever you are in Australia, and, you know, the only information you had was the ASX 200, a chart of the ASX 200, Um, you know, the price point, let's say on the 1st of Jan 2020, and the price point today, and look at those two numbers, you would have thought you know, things are going great. And you look at um, the Australian economy, you know, growth's been pretty strong, particularly given how um, much success we had at initially containing the spread of COVID-19. Um, the unemployment rate has a five handle or four handle on it at the moment. Inflation is only 3%. You'd think that things are pretty rosy. You wouldn't even know that we've all lived through mm. such a seismic event um, over the last couple of years and continue to live through it. With you know, Our borders aren't even open yet. So um, when I say you know, that early money, that, that sprint money, that's been made, we think we're moving into a, a, an environment where the gains will be tougher to come by. 
um, and we call this a, a sort of mid-cycle type environment. We still think that the global business cycle has a lot longer run, runway ahead of it, further growth to come, but certainly there are some storm clouds on the horizon which suggest that volatility for equity markets may pick up and we've seen that in the last couple of months, um, mm. particularly with concerns around some things that are going on in China, some things that are going in the US, concerns around the Fed um, tapering its asset purchases. Um, we're seeing central banks begin to raise interest rates. The Reserve Bank of New Zealand hiked rates. The Bank of Norway hiked rates and um, concerns around inflation as well. Well, Anthony, it feels like everything in equity markets is uh, is a sprint these days. You know, we had the fastest decline in history. We had the fastest recovery. Everything just seems to be going so quickly. It might be nice to just take a breath and settle into the slow pace of a marathon rather than a sprint. But I guess the question that comes out of that is how do you approach that as an investor? You know, the the easy money of from the immediate recovery has been made, but, you know, it sounds like you're still relatively bullish. You're definitely bullish long-term. So Bryce and I are trying to figure out what the hell to do with uh, the money that we're saving. You obviously, Fidelity runs hundreds of funds, so there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. But what are some rules of thumb that we can take and apply to our portfolios? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wrote a paper on this in April last year, just when there was so much volatility in markets and um, for financial advisors to use with their clients, but also for our direct investors. And, you know, it really comes back to the old rules. I mean, it can, I guess it'd be quite dull. You know, the exciting <laughs> thing is chasing coin, right? Chasing that quick win. Um, and, you know, looking for those you know, double baggers, triple baggers. Yeah. I think James and Maroon were talking about 500 baggers. You know. <laughs> Good luck, you know, if you can find that, that type of thing. And that's really doing, you know, your homework, your due diligence, but importantly being very patient, what we call patient capital. But it comes back to the, uh, the old chestnuts of diversification, you know, thinking about how you construct your equity portfolios, that there's not too much embedded risk in terms of correlations. So if one sector or one company is doing poorly, hopefully that's immune from the rest of your the portfolios in your uh, rest of companies in your portfolios. And academic literature suggests that you can diversify appropriately with as few as 12 to 16 companies, 12, 12 to 16 stocks. So it doesn't take much. Importantly, that doesn't mean the 12 buy now, pay later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. So, oh, PayPal have come in or Amazon have come in, you know, and, and what's that going to do? And, you know, you obviously the news, for example, the other day that Hertz have put a big order in with Tesla yeah, yeah. and, you know, you get those sort of you know, short-term noise, short-term volatility. And that brings me on to my second point, you know, extending your, your time horizon from a day, a week, a month, a year to, you know, thinking about long-term capital accumulation, sorry. And, you know, this is really how the very wealthy think, family offices that I, I meet with, endowments, mm. um, long-term capital, you know, thinking 50 years, yeah. generational wealth yeah. um, and building that uh, and using that power of compounding in your favour. And the great thing, you know, I come across many investors and they'll say I'm a long-term investor but their investment time horizons go from years to months to weeks to, to days in, in the most volatile markets yeah. when they see the value of their portfolios down in the ASX, you know, 30%. They're like, oh, God. And they normally sell at precisely the wrong time mm. behaviorally. So, you know, diversification, also uh, extending your time horizon. And thirdly, I would say you're going to expect this from someone that, that works for Fidelity International, but um, being active. Um, and being what we call active, you know, 
doing triathlons and, and doing mar- no, <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, Bryce is about to do a 150k bike ride. Nice, so. right? Yeah. Um, when I say be active, uh, obviously looking after your health is probably the best investment you can make. Second is education, but um, you know when we're talking about investment portfolios and we talk about what we describe active fund management rather than passive fund management, and that's being highly selective. Mm. Um, and, and not um, allocating capital to, to every company in the index, which is generally the index is constructed to some arbitrary rules about how big a company is or, or various other ways and means. Um, but we think that there are areas of markets which are inefficient and we're doing bottom-up homework, due diligence, fundamental analysis, you know, all the good stuff that um, James and Maroon spoke about a couple of weeks ago, the stuff that they do with our analyst team is one way to identify the winners and potentially avoid those losers. Whereas opposed to buying a passive index, and we've got, we've got no issue. You know, we, we have passive funds as well at Fidelity Offshore. They, they can be definitely very appropriate for investors as well, and, and particularly given um, the low fees that they charge. But um, there are parts of this investment world mm. where you want to take a more active approach. And, and good luck for the 150K flight ride. <laughs> oh, thank you. Nice <laughs> <one>. <laughs> Now, Anthony, to close out the conversation, uh, we want to touch on demographics briefly. You mentioned in your presentation that it's going to play a very important part in, you know, how the investment landscape is going to shape up over the next few decades. Are you able to expand on what you mean by this? The next decade or so for Australians will be characterised by investors looking further afield for returns and they've um, historically had to look. We've been very spoiled by having a, a relatively higher interest rate in Australia We've been pretty spoiled by how well the ASX 200 has performed and we've also been spoiled because we have the fourth largest pool of savings in the world in our superannuation industry and that naturally has quite a high bias to Aussie equities as well. Um, So you've seen this every time you get paid your salary and the necessary 9.5%, goes into your super fund, inevitably a balanced fund will buy some portion of Aussie equities with that as well. So that's a very strong technical bid for the market going higher. Now, I think going forward, Australians looking further afield, they'll be looking at emerging market equities, they'll be looking at Asian equities, um, they'll be looking at global equities and potentially some more more niche style funds. I also think that thematic funds um, will also be appealing to Australian investors. You've seen that in the ETF space, but also fund managers like Fidelity provide access to to products um, that tap into some of these themes as well. And I think the demographics is a very powerful theme because I can talk to you now, we'll come back in a year's time and everything might have been right. More likely I've got some things right, I've got some things wrong, hopefully haven't got everything wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's the beauty of publishing views um, in black and white, writing them down, but also you know, talking in podcasts these days or doing interviews. With those short-term factors, they are very difficult to predict despite them being closer in the time horizon. Sometimes it's far easier to predict the long run, the long term. And demographic trends are actually quite um, easy, not easy, but um, we can be quite accurate with our predictions. And with that, you know, we think we're we're living longer, we're living better, um, and there's going to be more of us um, in this this globe going forward. So we think about how can we construct a portfolio that will tap into some of those themes, living longer, living better, and and living healthier. There's more of us, of course. Um, and we think that this is a, a trend, uh, a demographic trend that certainly companies can look at, um, but also investors in um, providing capital to these companies 
to benefit and generate those long-term sustainable returns that will help them meet their investment and savings goals going forward. So again, I guess I've spoken a lot today about extending your time horizon. I think allocating to to something that potentially taps into those themes of demographics, which are predictable Mm. and seeing um, which are the innovative companies that are likely to potentially benefit from some of these trends is one way that investors could potentially um, generate those returns that they require um, Mm. going forward. Yeah, I mean, the impact of demographics can be seen in the very short term if you look at like Coles and Woolies and their commentary around uh, population growth and immigration and what that's going to do to like their top line. Um, and, you know, because there's going to be less immigration, it's going to affect them this year, next year. But then if you extend that over decades and you extrapolate that, you know, some of those population trends, yeah. you see just how important that will be for companies' fortunes. Yeah, especially in the emerging world as well, right, mm. where they're, they're still developing and they're still um, moving up in terms of their standards of living to what we enjoy here in developed markets, Yeah, whether that's online penetration or access to the internet mm. um, or access to simple insurance products, access to healthcare. You know, there are companies all along this way that stand to benefit from some of those those trends that are are more predictable, like demographics. Yeah. So, Anthony, we have come to the end of our time. We want to thank you for joining us today. If people want to hear more from you, they should head to the ASX website and listen to your full presentation. Uh, and I'm sure if they jump on the Fidelity website, they can read a lot more of what you've written. Yes, and access to webinars and, and all sorts of things where I, I interview portfolio managers and analysts. Um, but, yeah, look at the ASX presentation. It's a cracker. Um, <laughs> if you say I'm so sure yourself. You're gonna, I'm sure they'll enjoy it. Yeah, if I say so myself. <laughs> please give some kind feedback nice. uh, as well. That would be, that'll be nice. Uh, my boss will like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get stuck into these final three questions. Uh, we have asked you before, but you've told us you've come with new answers. So yes. if people want to go back and listen to your old interview, they yep. can compare the pair. Yes, yes. Uh, but we'll start with the first one. Uh, do you have any books that you consider must read? Yes, so I've got two for you and um, stepping outside of the, the finance world a little bit um, because I know that you get a lot of finance book recommendations and you know my job is reading a lot so I like to tune out from mm. that um, sometimes. So uh, you probably had Shoe Dog, Phil Knight, yeah. recommended before. Um, right. So I thought that was just a fantastic story um but the one the my um other book that i just finished and this is for bryce is a book called iron war the greatest race ever run have you ever had that one recommended to no. you? so this is um jensen button's favorite book and i heard he might be good for your podcast as well so i heard him on a podcast you know the f1 racer yeah yeah um and this is a story of um these two gun athletes in um the 80s dave scott and mark allen and uh, it was the early days of the um, Ironman triathlons and these two guys just going at it and this story, all their background and they, they basically, I don't want to give it away, but um, they, they were neck and neck, this whole, you know, Ironman, which is I think. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's yeah. a marathon at the end. Marathon, I think it's a 180K bike 180K bike, yeah. yeah so like 5K swim or something. worth uh, yeah. definitely um, pretty inspiring for your bike ride. Yeah, I'm um, way, I really, I'm way I really enjoyed not even close to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Jensen Button recommended it. I read okay. It was really, really good, um, really good read, uh, nice. really well written. So, um, you have a look at that for those of you that want to be like Bryce. Love that, love that. Real exercise theme, uh, Shoe Dog and Iron yes. War. yeah. Yeah. So uh, second question, uh, what's the best company you've ever come across? 
Yeah, so last time I said my dad's company uh, and he told me not to say that <laughs> uh, again. So I thought about this. I've got another book, Sam Walton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, which book. is Made, Made, in Made in America. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I thought that, um, you know, I thought about a great company, um, you know, whether you're thinking about uh, an Amazon, um, but Walmart, you know, I think it's like almost half a trillion dollar market cap, starts mm. from a, a small convenience store in the early 60s. Yeah. You know, what an amazing story. Um, I think employs over 2 million people today. Yeah. When um, the, the piece of research came out from our macro team in London, they were highlighting minimum wage increases in the US um, and there are a number of large firms that uh, um, have uh, some subscribed to the $15 an hour minimum wage and Walmart is one of them. Mm. Um, so that can actually have a, a rising impact on inflationary pressures in the US too, and the US being how important they are in capital markets. Yeah. Um, you know, the Fed, obviously a lot of central banks will move their monetary conditions depending upon what the Fed is doing too. So, you know, the Walmart effect. Yeah. Um, so, oh, you've heard that book before. I didn't think you'd hear yeah, So Bri- it. So Bryce and I both uh, came up in retail, like he was at Woolies, I was at Coles. Oh, right, yeah. I, I remember, you know, that that's the book they suggest you read when you start. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading it and you just, you're so inspired for retail after Even reading the, it. the <laughs> techniques he had, you know, yeah, lost yeah, leaders yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. just um, he went against the grain obviously and I yeah. guess that's how a lot of startups happen. You know, they, they look at what the incumbents do, what they are, what can we do differently mm. um, and, you know, even something as simple as buy now, pay later, you know, the lay by, oh. <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like a, I remember mum going into Target and lay buying stuff, you know, mm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shirts and stuff. So, <laughs> you th- And you think Coles and Woolies are big retailers, but then you look at the revenue that Walmart's generating. Was it almost $600 billion or something yeah, ridiculous? Yeah, yeah. Two million people. It's just like. Well, like what, what a story, it's right? Crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So good company. Yeah, I good think. company. Yeah. And uh, what the American operation was run by a New Zealander, ex-Woolies, uh, Greg Foran. We have tried to get him on the show many times and no luck. Oh, really? So if I hope you're listening to this. If he's listening, come on. Greg. Come on. The guys are nice. <laughs> they give you a cup of water. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what more can you ask for? He's now the CEO of Air New Zealand, so he's pretty busy. But come on. <laughs> well, yeah. Borders are coming down soon. True, you can come true, over. true. Yeah. Uh, and then Anthony, final question. Uh, if you think back to your younger self, uh, getting that teenage mutant ninja turtle shirt <laughs> from Target on lay by, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? I was thinking about this coming in today and, and my first job was at Macquarie Bank. I, I remember working um, on the, the floor with the equity investors and the fixed income investors and I remember it just annoying a lot of people, just asking them lots of questions but also generally making myself a bit of a pest. In those days the brokers used to send all their reports physically um, rather than send them via PDF or email and I used to go over to the equity desk and read the reports and ask some questions about companies and things like that. So um, the next piece of advice I'm going to give you, um, your first piece, you know, you can listen to the other podcast, but this podcast, it would be go and ask lots of questions of more senior people within your organization and build up a strong network. Um, because I think half the game in investment management is being enthusiastic and putting your hand up to do things. And uh, I still have, you know, lunches and, and catch ups with people that I worked with at Macquarie um, in 2002, 2003. Um, so I think that that's a really great way for you to, to get into the industry, know the industry, and, and you never know what opportunities might develop from having a very strong network of, of peers and, and mm. um, that enthusiasm. If you have enthusiasm, you're halfway there, I think, to, to being successful. Yeah, love that. 
Love it, Anthony. Well, as always, it's been incredibly insightful chatting with you. I know that uh, a, a lot of the big questions and debates around at the moment, uh, you know, are certainly playing on the mind of the Equimates community. So you've uh, hopefully helped us uh, unpack it and understand it a little bit more. So as always, a pleasure. A reminder, if you want to check out Anthony's presentation, head to the link in the show notes or the ASX website, search Investor Day, uh, and you can follow what he's doing at the Fidelity website as well. But Anthony, thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you. So drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equity Mates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code Program. Respects to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 